outside the city gate. It was a lonely life, but don't feel sorry for me. We made the best of it. And living so close to the wall, you hear and see things that others miss. Living by the gate, we watched everyone's comings and everyone's goings. It was pretty much our only entertainment in our otherwise dreary existence. Anyway, I remember seeing King Joram ride in and out of the city on his grand chariot, surrounded by all the royal fuss. He looked so proud and powerful. But the word on the street was that he was scared. (laughs) Because beyond these walls, out there in the distance, was the threat of Ben-Hadab, the mighty king of the Arameans. Though at that time there had been peace for a while, I'm sure the power of Aram's army gave Joram nightmares. But inside the walls, no one would dare oppose the king. No one except Elisha. That man of God was crazy. He would say things to the king's face that no one else would dare say in secret. Well, then it happened. One day we were hanging out by the gate begging for some bread from some merchants, and we saw a dust cloud in the distance. As it got closer, we could see it was soldiers of the royal guard making a beeline for the gate. They were headed straight for the gate in this mad frenzy, and only moments after they entered, we heard the heavy clunk of the iron cogs as the gate slammed shut. It crashed with such a hasty thud. We were used to being shut out at night. That was our life. But to be shut out in the middle of the day in such unusual haste, well, before long, our suspicions were confirmed. We were at war. Soon we began to see troops form on the horizon. We saw the sun reflecting off what we assumed were shields and maybe even chariots. And the dust rose up around an army too great to count. And out of the dust rose the banners of Aram. No more skirmishes, no more guerrilla warfare. This was nothing less than the entire army of Ben-Hadab encamped against us. Samaria was under siege. And here we were, between a rock and a hard place, the entire forces of Aram before us, and the wall right at our backs. Never had I felt so vulnerable, so totally forsaken. Well, the next few months were a complete blur. As the siege drug on, things went from bad to worse. We'd stay hidden under the cover of rubbish rubbish by day, and then we'd sneak around at night when we could. It got so desperate, sometimes I just wished they would charge the city walls and end it quickly. But no. They just waited. They waited as food ran out. They waited as hope ran out. Most nights, we could see the faint glow of their fires. On quiet nights, you could sometimes hear the far-off sound of drunken laughter. They flaunted their bounty as we wasted away. Early on in the siege, someone might toss a little bit of bread or something over the wall to us. We'd live for those moments. But even those moments felt like a cruel joke. As half a dozen of us lepers, we'd have to divide a small morsel among us. By the end of three months, six of us had dwindled to just four. And four of us barely hung by a thread. It had been such a painfully long time since anything edible came over the wall. Although our standard of edible 
was continually redefined in ways I'd rather not talk about. I later learned that even inside the wall, a donkey's head was being sold for 80 silver shekels. And even a handful of bird poop was sold for a shekel. That's how desperate it was. Well, still the misery, it just drug on each miserable day, blending into the next. But one day, I'll never forget as long as I live. I was crouched down in some trash that by this time had piled about waist high in some places against the wall. And directly above me, high up on the wall, I saw the king himself. He was pacing back and forth, obviously distressed, his paranoid eyes always just scanning the horizon. He could just make out the edge of the enemy camp in the distance. Well, then I heard this cry from the other side of the wall. It was a woman's voice, and it was the sound of pure desperation. She cried out something like, Help me, my lord, my king! Without even taking his eyes off the horizon, the king yelled back, If Yahweh won't help you, then how do you expect me to help you? His words were so callous. Had the king given up hope too? After a pause, he pulled his eyes away from the horizon for the first time since I'd noticed him, and he looked down toward the woman on the other side of the wall, and he says, Okay, what's the matter? The woman's reply sent chills down my protruding spine. Her voice was hollow and broken, and she called up to the king to report that famine had claimed the life of her child and also her neighbor's child. And in absolute desperation, it drove them to make a gruesome pact. They'd survive on the corpse of her child and then on her neighbor's. The woman's voice grew more and more angry as she explained to the king that when her child was gone, her neighbor hid the other child. I couldn't believe my ears. Could I have heard that right? She was so desperate that she sounded more indignant at the betrayal of her neighbor than over the atrocity of what became of her own child. At that moment, it struck me. Things inside the city wall were as utterly dismal as they are outside the wall. Desperate does not begin to describe the situation. Her words pierced the king's heart, too. I could see him trying to grasp what he just heard. I thought that this would be the thing that would bring him to his knees. But I was wrong. Like all those consumed with arrogance, instead of humbly repenting and calling on God, I see he boiled with anger. Even from my hiding spot down below the wall, I could see his face get bright red. And he swore this oath. The king said, May God do worse to me if Elisha's head's not cut off by the end of this day. Then he stomped off down the wall with his cohort scrambling behind. You know, some people are always just looking for someone else to blame when things go bad. I remember feeling so unbelievably sad. Sad for this woman and her her family. Sad with disappointment over the king. And sad for Elisha the prophet. I always liked that guy. If only for his nerve speaking his mind to the king. Sometimes he seemed like the only one with any sense in the whole city. And now he would be yet another casualty of this dismal saga. I sunk down in my pit of garbage. And I wanted to cry so bad, but no tears came. 
I don't know if it's because we never had nearly enough to drink or because when you grieve so long, you just run out of tears. I don't know how long I'd laid there, but I must have dozed off because I was really awakened by Benjamin tugging on my foot. As I propped my head up, I saw a puzzled look on his face. He'd been further down the wall, and he got some curious news. Apparently, the king had sent an assassin to kill Elisha in his own house while he was meeting with some elders. But when the king's assassin arrived, one of the old guys just slammed the door in his face. The king himself arrived at Elisha's house, but he was so caught off guard, well, the assassination never took place. The king just blurted out to Elisha and all that were there. He says, this whole mess is God's fault. I'm done waiting on God. At that, I interrupted Benjamin's story. I said, I'm no man of God, but it seems like no matter how we got in this mess, Yahweh's still our best bet for getting out of it. I can't believe how foolish the king is. Some people seem to distance themselves from God right when they need him the most. With mock seriousness, Benjamin warns, those are dangerous words. I dare you to speak those inside the wall. Then he continued his story. When the king said that he was no longer waiting on God and that the king was taking matters into his own hands, Elisha just stared him down. Then when Elisha did open his mouth, the man of God said, this is the word of Yahweh. By tomorrow, a seah of flour will sell for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Well, this sounds really outrageous. Uh, the city's economy returning overnight in just a single day, things going back to normal. Well, the king's officer thought it sounded outrageous too because he openly mocked Lysha for those words. Some people respond to difficulty with cynicism. Well, Elisha apparently didn't like his cynicism because he looked at the officer, he pointed his bony finger at him, and he said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you'll taste none of it. Well, as Benjamin finished telling me this story, the four of us sat silently for a long while. We all wanted to believe Elisha's words, but they seemed totally ridiculous. His prediction that all would return to normal in a single day, well, it was just too good to be true. Life has a way of teaching us that when something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. We learned this lesson early, and we learned it well. I wanted to hope, but the more I thought about the impossible situation, the more I refused to hope. I guess like tears... A person only has a limited supply of hope. When tears and hope are never rewarded, they dry up. I looked around at the other three. What a pathetic excuse for life we were. Even this short spurt of excitement over the curious news left us too weary to really talk much. We'd grown so slow. Hunger and thirst, it shadows everything. No one spoke, so I tried to read their eyes as unrecognizably sunken as they were. I glanced from one to the other. Eliaphaz, he just stared at the ground blankly. Joel's eyes, well, they were hollow with despair, just like Eliaphaz's. I, was feared, I just feared there was one of them who was going to go next. Then I looked at Benjamin's eyes. It was a look I'd seen before. Where had I seen that look? 
Events from throughout my life flashed through my mind. Events when I was still just a boy living inside the wall. I remember my neighbor's house had burned down. He lost all his possessions. They didn't have any family nearby. That's when I saw that look. It was the same look I saw in my uncle's eyes when my cousin died fighting the Arameans. I remember the same look when a family friend told us that her husband was leaving her for a younger Moabite woman. It was the same look in my own mother's eyes when they confirmed that I had leprosy. And she was forced to send me away to live outside the wall. Both of our hearts broke that day. And I was sure it was the very same look that Benjamin saw in my eyes when he looked back at me. It's the look that says, I don't see how I could possibly go on. I'm just hanging by a thread. I want to dare to hope that things could somehow turn out better, but I feel myself sliding into despair. That's it. I had enough. I couldn't take it anymore, so I started to speak. I tried to sound confident, but my words sounded faint. I said, you know, guys, we got nothing to lose. I'm not going to just sit here and fade into oblivion like the others. I'm going to do something. Well, just what do you suggest, Joel mumbled. So I said, well, if we stay here, then either we starve to death, or if the Arameans decide to storm the city, then we're the first to die. So either way, we die. Benjamin says, two great options, death and death. But I wasn't finished. What if we just get up and go to the Aramean camp? Maybe they'll take us as prisoners. And who knows? Maybe they feed their prisoners. Then Benjamin said, well, it sounds like a third way to die, but at least it's quicker. To be honest, I knew Benjamin was probably right. We really had no reason to hope. It's just that I kept thinking about Elisha's words that things would get better. His words sounded unbelievable, but I wanted to believe that things could get better. I had heard the stories about things God has done. Maybe it's not so far-fetched to think we can survive against all odds. Maybe it's a one in a million chance that the the cruel Ben-Hadab would spare our lives. But maybe with God, he changes the odds. While I was still trying to sort all this out, Benjamin interrupts, and he states, Okay, I'm in, and he slowly stands to his feet. Well, we looked at Joel and Eliaphaz. They nodded, indicating the same, although with much less enthusiasm. And so before you know it, by the bleak light of a full moon, four pathetic creatures, hunched over but full of resolve, we start hobbling across the wasteland between the wall and the enemy camp. We were already moving at a snail's pace, but as we got nearer and nearer, everything seemed to come to a standstill. After plotting what seemed like an eternity, we neared the final low ridge that separated us from the enemy encampment. We were expecting a confrontation at any moment. I remember my heart was just beating out of my chest. What is going to happen? And we neared the top of the ridge, and we raised our hands. I I think this was Joel's idea. So with hands held over our heads in surrender, I held my breath 
as we reached the top of this mound, and I looked down on the most bewildering sight in my entire life. No one said a word. We were dumbfounded. Then confusion gave way to hope. And hope gave way to unspeakable joy. For right in the very spot that had haunted our dreams, the place where we saw banners by day and heard drunken laughter by night, right there was not a single soldier in sight. There were horses still tied up. There were all kinds of equipment and valuables strewn everywhere. And then we saw it. Food. Food fit for a feast and drink everywhere. Throwing caution aside, we stumbled down the ridge and into the camp, and we ate and we drank like the madmen that we were. Never had I tasted such a heavenly feast. When we'd eaten all we could, we began to look at the abandoned valuables lying around. Well, that's when I found this medallion. This didn't make any sense at all, but we didn't care. We were so giddy as we frantically explored the camp. We must have looked like fools. Everywhere we looked, we found more treasure and more food. Finally, Benjamin shouted, There's enough food here to feed a city! Well, that stopped us in our tracks. I think it dawned on us at the same time, There's a whole city of starving people, and here we are gorging ourselves. So, after stuffing our newly found pockets, we borrowed some donkeys, and after some effort mounting the beast, we made our way back to the city of Samaria. Well, what's that? What, what happened to the army? Well, we found out later that God spooked them off. With the sound of chariots, they ran all the way to the Jordan, throwing off stuff and leaving it along the way. But I'm not quite done with my story. So by the time we reached the city, it was in the wee hours of the morning. We shouted the news to the gatekeepers, but, of course, nobody believed us. From outside the gate, we could slowly hear the sounds of the city coming alive. We saw the heads curiously peeking over the wall at us. The rumor spread through town until somebody woke up the king. He assumed it was some kind of trap, but eventually was convinced to send some scouts to check it out. We were amazed the gate even still worked. <laughs> it had not been open for months on end, but now we heard its nostalgic creak as it opened for the scouts, then promptly slammed shut behind them with the familiar thud. Now it seemed every man, woman, and child left in the city was up on the wall looking for the scout's return. I could see the familiar look in their faces. They wanted to believe, but they too had forgotten how to hope. But as for the four of us, we just smiled. <laughs> we knew the treat they had in store. Well, after some time, someone on the top of the wall shouted, I see horses! The scouts are returning! And the scouts approached the gate. The people moved to let the king through. The king heard the report as everyone was straining in to listen, but we already knew what they had found. Again, we heard the groan of the gate, and we saw a single man come out of the city as the royal guard held the people back. It turns out this was the very same officer of the king who had uh, been so cynical and mocked Elisha. The king placed him in charge of the operation to ransack the Aramean camp. But as soon as the people were released, well, hunger got the best of them, and they trampled right over the king's officer. As the crowd made the trek we had made just a few hours earlier, I saw the, king, the officer's body laying in front of the gate. Well, it turns out that every 
last word that the man of God spoke on behalf of Yahweh happened exactly as he said it would happen. Because of the great bounty from the enemy camp, the city economy returned overnight. Everyone had food to eat, and the officer of the king, he indeed saw this happen, but as Elisha said, he would taste none of it. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I don't think I'll ever doubt God again as long as I live. I've had some difficult times since then, but never anything like the great Aramean siege. And whenever I'm tempted to blame other people or distance myself from God or become really cynical, I just remember how wonderful it is to dare to hope in God. I don't know what difficulties you might be going through. Maybe your life seems hopeless sometimes. Maybe, maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your friendships or your, your finances seem hopeless. I, I don't know your situation. But with God, there's always reason to hope. I've been in tough places many times. Never, never quite like that. <laughs> and God hasn't always miraculously intervened like he did that day. But he always does every single thing he says he will do. And through good and bad, he's always doing something in me when I let him. That's why I beg you, whatever you're facing, dare to hope in God. Well, that's my story. Thanks for hearing it out. I warned you it's a hard one to listen to. Now you have to excuse me. I I think I've stayed too long. I'm sure you don't want to catch what I've got. contagious one leaves if you could please stand and in honor of uh, Martin Luther uh, we will sing one of his hymns a mighty fortress is our God mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. 